Hi everyone, welcome to Leukemia Chatters from Leukemia Care. I'm Charlotte, the Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. So today I'm joined by Nikki, who was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. Thanks for joining us, Nikki. Thank you very much for having me. No problem, it's lovely to have you. Some of you may recognise Nikki from other stories we've done, particularly our Telegraph appeal last year, but I feel like Nikki has, still has plenty more to tell us and it would be great to talk to her. So, Nikki, did you want to start by just explaining when you were diagnosed, sort of the events that led up to diagnosis and symptoms and things like that? Okay, I was actually diagnosed on the 10th of December 2014 with acute myeloid leukaemia, which was an absolute bolt out of the blue for me. Um, leading up to that, back in September of 2014, I started having um, what I called was a pulsating in my head. Uh, it's like I could hear my pulse beating in my head all the time. Well, I went to my doctor's uh, and she thought I just had tinnitus and referred me to the ENT clinic, which my appointment came through for the 16th of December. So in the interim, I just carried on. And then... I started just feeling very generally not myself, very low, uh, but I just put it down. My youngest daughter had moved abroad to start working. My eldest daughter had just met her then fiance. And so I sort of felt like maybe just empty nest syndrome. I was just feeling low and everything was an effort. Then I got two gum infections and went to my dentist, had really strong antibiotics, which cleared it up but the tiredness never went away. And in the October, it was my 50th birthday. I went to Barcelona with a group of my very good friends. I had an amazing time, but nonetheless, I was still very tired and I still had this pounding in my head, which just wouldn't go away. Anyway, so that was in October. Come November, I just was plodding on. Uh, still extremely tired. I was going to the gym, but finding I just couldn't do my classes, but I was just trying like I normally do. And then in the first week of December, we were going to Gran Canaria to visit my daughter who'd moved out there to work. And just before we went, I said to my other daughter, something's wrong with me. I'm either really unfit or something's seriously wrong with me. So I made an appointment to see the doctors the day I came back from Gran Canaria. So I saw the doctor on the Tuesday morning and really she just sort of said, well, we'll do some bloods and we'll see, we'll take it from there. And I remember feeling, oh, okay, that's it. That's all you're going to do to help me. Anyway, I go to the reception afterwards. And fortunately, there was a cancellation at 10 past nine the following morning on the Wednesday, the 10th of December for a blood test. So I booked in, had the blood test, went off to work, carried on as normal. That afternoon, which was a Wednesday, which I'll never ever forget, um, about 4.30, I was getting my Christmas tree down from the loft with my daughter and my house phone rang. And I thought, oh, I'm not getting it. I want to get the tree sorted. Then my mobile rang and I still said, no, I'm not answering it. I want to sort the tree out. And then the house phone rang again and my daughter said, you really must answer that because obviously somebody needs you. So it was my doctor and they'd had my results back already from Bournemouth Hospital with my results and my blood tests. And he just said, you need to go into hospital. You're very anemic. They need you to go in, pack an overnight bag because you'll probably be in for a few days. 
and get yourself down there as soon as possible. And of course, I was like, can I finish putting my tree up? And he was like, no, you need to go now. So anyway, so I rushed around, collected a bag of like overnight stay things. And my daughter took me down. So we were in there by six o'clock that evening. We then followed a barrage of questions, blood tests. So they did that for probably a couple of hours. And then they left us. We were sat in like in the family room, having a cup of tea, watching television, just chatting. And then by about half past eight, they came back in and told me that I had got acute myeloid leukemia. My first response was, oh, I'm glad they found something wrong with me. They can help me. Little did I know what was coming. You know, totally oblivious of really what acute myeloid leukemia was and what was going to follow. So obviously I was admitted there and then, hooked up. I had a blood transplant within the first couple of hours and then another one during the night. And on the Thursday, they did a barrage of tests to make sure that I was strong enough to cope with all that was going to be thrown at me. And on the Friday afternoon, I started my chemotherapy. So that was the 12th of December. And I remember talking to my consultant and she said, right, because I was signing all the forms to agree to what was coming. And she said, right, your first course is 10 days. And this was the 12th of December. My daughter's birthday is the 21st of December. And I, and I remember saying, does that mean I'll still be in on the twin, like on her birthday? And they were like, yes. So I had like a little tear come down because I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to be at home. Anyway, <clears throat> so I had my 10 days of chemo and obviously they don't release you straight away because you have no immune system. So in fact, I stayed in for four weeks. So I was in over Christmas, over New Year. Um, and then like the rest, like they let me home for a week. Then I went back in for another course of chemotherapy and it was when I went back in the second time that they told me that I was at a very high risk of relapse and then I would need a stem cell transplant. I did that another month in there, came home for a week and when I went back in for my third course of chemotherapy they'd up the dosage to a really strong amount to get me ready for the stem cell transplant and that stay was seven weeks and four days. So I was in there that whole time. And as you can imagine, stir crazy, bored, feeling very unwell. Uh, the chemo makes you, I, I felt worse than what I did when I went in initially. So I did my seven weeks, four days. And towards the end, they knew I was getting so low. They let me out slightly earlier because I just wanted to go home. And so I came home. I had probably two weeks at home. And then I had to go into Southampton Hospital for my stem cell transplant. Just thinking before we go into the transplant, I think that's probably a good place to stop and maybe go back a little bit. I've got a few questions about sort of the events that led up to diagnosis, if, if that's all right. I'm intrigued by this pounding in your head. Did they ever work out what that was and how it was related to leukemia at all? I think it was just purely because my body was working so hard to pump the blood that I did have in my body that wasn't affected by the leukemia. Um, so yes, they gave me the blood transplants that evening, like two, two pints overnight, and miraculously, it stopped. But when I was in there and I told the consultant about it, and he put his head close to mine, and he could actually hear this pounding. It was that, it was horrible. It was really horrible. I found if I pressed my neck like this, it would stop the pounding. 
So I don't 100% know exactly what it was, but I know it was it was stopped by these blood transplants, transfusions that I had. That's interesting. So we we talk a lot about the various symptoms that people have because we're trying to raise awareness of those. Um, they're not sort of traditional cancer symptoms in that you there's no lump or anything you can link dif- specifically to cancer. But it sounds as if infections and fatigue were the ones for you, as well as the pounding. But the fatigue and the infections are the ones that really affected you. Would you say that's right? Absolutely. Yeah, the gum infection. It was weird because I had one. I went to the dentist. <clears throat> he sorted that out. And then it came back about two weeks later. And I'm fastidious cleaning my teeth. I'm like, how can this happen? Um, but the tiredness and the breathlessness, because I've always been really quite fit. As I said, I was going to the gym up until about a week before I went into hospital. And they were like, oh, my God, how are you still going? And I was like, well, I don't know. I wasn't doing very good because I just didn't have the energy. I just couldn't do it. But I, I wouldn't give up because I'm thinking, oh, I've hit 50. <clears throat> I've suddenly I've gone downhill, which is really weird. So I wouldn't give up. But yes, it was I when I walked to the doctors for my appointment that day, I just got out of breath walking there. And that's 10 minutes from my home. And I just sat down in there and I thought, oh, everything was an effort. But you know, you, you, I sort of just put it down to my age and you just carry on because you have to. I have my two daughters, well, one daughter living with me and I look after my dad who's elderly. So you just power on. I just pushed it aside. I would never have thought in a million years that I was going to be diagnosed with leukemia. That's something we definitely hear a lot of. It's just yeah. stresses of life or I'm yep. getting older and yeah hopefully I think we're trying to raise awareness of the difference between the two and how it's not inevitable that you as you get older these things happen and you should really seek help so what made you go to that last GP visit when you got the blood test then what was there like a final straw or was it I'll just try again what what happened I wasn't feeling like myself because I know what I can do and I know as I said I push on regardless of whatever's going on but it this was just it wasn't a normal tiredness I could like sit at home in the afternoon about four o'clock I say I just need to go to sleep and you know I never nap in the day it's just unheard of it so I, I guess for me it was the extreme tiredness and the shortness of breath trying to do anything so yeah I and I think probably deep inside I just knew something was more seriously wrong than being tired and uh, lazy so yeah that was what pushed me I think it was it was because yeah deep inside I knew something wasn't right which is why I say when they diagnosed that I had something I was relieved because I thought at last I can get some help and I haven't been imagining all these things for the last three months yeah and you had a blood test on that appointment as well, which is obviously the key thing for leukemia. It's sort of all you need to start the, the diagnosis pathway. But it sounds as if it wasn't an urgent blood test that they were asking you to have. I mean, I was very fortunate. I came out of my doctor's appointment and they had a cancellation the next morning. Because normally you can wait one, two weeks to get into your doctor's surgery because it's so busy and it's Christmas. So, yeah, I, it was meant to be. Um, it, I was very fortunate because when I went in, they were like, oh, you've actually walked here because in, in Bournemouth hospitals, really long corridors to get to where I had to go to. 
And I was like, well, yeah, of course I did. You know, how else am I supposed to get here? But they were shocked because I was so, like my bloods were so poorly that I could actually manage to walk in and uh, attend. So when you went into that hospital then, it was December, you were talking about your Christmas decorations and it's it's a time of year that we all look forward to more so this year in 2020, I think. But what was being ill like at Christmas like? People, I, I guess there's a perception that if you're ill over Christmas, it, it maybe ruins the Christmas a little bit. How How was it for you? Was it a bit depressing in that sense? Christmas is such a big thing. My daughters love Christmas. And so... Christmas morning, I woke up, obviously it was on my own, feeling pretty poorly. Uh, the nurses, I've got to say, absolutely fantastic. They came round with a little gift for every inpatient, which sort of cheered you up. And they also came round with the drinks trolley later on in the day. So that cheered me up because obviously no alcohol for, well, nearly three weeks by that point. So I had a little tot of port. Staff were fantastic. And they made like Christmas Day because we're in the cancer wards where I was, you're isolated in your own rooms. For Christmas lunch, they allowed us to sit in like the common area and share our Christmas lunch. Sadly, a lot of people were very ill. So there were probably four of us sat around a little table and we had like a Christmas meal. And my family came and visited me after lunch. But yeah, it just totally took the shine off Christmas, obviously, because A, I wasn't at home with them. They had managed to put the tree up uh, without my help eventually. But I think my daughter told me afterwards that she just cried when she put it up because she knew I wouldn't be there. And they saved all the presents and everything until I came home, which was mid-January. And so we had our Christmas dinner in January. So yes, it, it just, my illness sadly completely overtook Christmas for us that year. And so every year since then, we make a massive deal out of Christmas. I, I've now got two Christmas trees every year. We just, you know, we make it really even more special than it ever was because I missed that one Christmas. So, yeah, it was it was tough. I think that was going to be my next question was how has it affected Christmas going forward? Is it a sad time of year for you now or maybe reflective? How do you feel about Christmas going forward? I just love it now because I'm home. Because when you're, when you're stuck in a little room on your own and you know most families are happy, celebrating, and we would have been, but obviously there was no way I could. So like my first Christmas out of hospital, um, it was very special. Like I say, we have two Christmas trees now, um, but I still couldn't drink for the first like 18 months after my transplant. So I just had like the tiny, tiniest drop of Prosecco. And by with this point, I had been corresponding with my donor. And in our cards, we said like, right, three o'clock Christmas day, we'll raise our glasses to each other. Uh, and that's a tradition that we still do. Now we FaceTime, so we see each other on Christmas day. So yeah, it's, it does really make you appreciate life going through something like that and um yeah so Christmas is a really really special time this year my daughter's due to have a baby in four weeks time so it's gonna be even more special this year um thanks to my donor I am here oh that's lovely I hope everything goes smoothly for her before we go on I'm I'm really keen to talk about your donors it's a massive part of your story but I just think in what you what you were saying about your family coming to visit you and your daughter being upset while putting up the Christmas tree, I, I, a big part of your story I noticed while reading as well is 
you talk about the impact on your family of your diagnosis and I think they perhaps don't get as much support as as they deserve the family and friends and how how was it for your family and friends and how did they receive any support that they needed at the time? Well my uh, my youngest daughter as I said she was working abroad she came home and so she stayed home for 18 months before she went back to work so basically I'm a single parent to my daughters they're my life and as a mother obviously you always do what you can for your children so in this instance it was totally role reversal because I'm stuck in there and I can't do anything so I remember saying oh you need to put the dustbins out how and they were like how do you use the washing machine so I had to talk them through you know the basics the the things that I always did at home that they take for granted so as I say a total total role reversal they were coming into me is there any food you want us to bring have you got any washing you want us to take home they were brilliant I must say they kept me going and I've got a really really close network of friends and they came to see me but more importantly they were there for my girls they would bring them meals round if they were sat in hospital with me and they haven't had time to cook they were there if any of them wanted to go and cry and offload a little bit um so for them the support was you know our really close friendship group um and because when they came in to see me they always put on a brave face they would never sit and cry in front of me which I'm sure they did loads of when they were at home because it was so traumatic you know nothing was a given at that point I didn't know was I going to make it wasn't I going to make it you know it's so it was such a knife edge time in all of our lives and if it's humanly possible it's made us even closer um we are yeah so close yeah I think it's nice to have that some silver lining from an experience like this in terms of you have to take what you can definitely so you mentioned when you were telling us about your treatment story um that you were told you were at high risk of relapse and I think relapse is one of the big scary things about acute leukemias in particular you know the aim is to cure but it's not always possible for everyone how did how did it feel to be told that did you understand what that meant in terms of I assume it was genetically based did you understand that not really I um I was in in my bed in hospital and the consultant came and it was a consultant that I hadn't actually met before so I didn't even know his name and he came in and he said oh we've had some tests come back showing that you're at high risk of relapse so he said so that will mean you'll need a transplant and I'm like okay you know just thinking something else he said but that will add a year to your recovery and I'm thinking oh my god this sounds like pretty goddamn serious so from then the ball started rolling like my my siblings were tested to see if they were a match which sadly they weren't and then obviously like Anthony Nolan stepped in and searched unfortunately uh, I think on the day my transplant nurse came in I think they'd found four potential matches and I was like hmm, well, that's not very good is it and my daughters are both like that is really good you're really lucky and um so they selected the one they did who was a nine out of ten match for me yeah so but uh, your question I didn't really know the impact again of what was coming towards me which sometimes I think probably is good ignorance is bliss you didn't know what the hell was going to happen to me yeah yeah and so the transplant starts then how was that 
experience of the actual transplant itself so in your story I read as you you felt ill for sort of 18 months afterwards you felt unwell I went I had my transplant in Southampton which is about 30 miles from home so that in itself made it quite awkward for my girls to visit because they're both working full-time so like I made them only come once each a week so I had two visits a week I didn't see anybody else Southampton's a fantastic hospital but it's very more clinical uh, and it's because it's so serious yet again I was in my own room I went up 10 days before my actual transplant because they give you conditioning therapy so more drugs and stronger and unfortunately I I took them quite well I didn't have any serious side effects obviously you don't feel well and it's it's boring in there because you're on your own So I had my 10 days of treatment beforehand. And then on day zero, which was the 20th of May, 2015, which we'll never forget, my new cells arrived. It was about 6.30 in the evening. Both my daughters had taken the day off work to come and be present when the cells started going in. And quite honestly, it's quite an anti-climatical day because you're expecting wonders. But it was just basically like having a blood transfusion. It's just a bag of cells set up and it goes into your into your line um, and nothing happens. It's not an immediate, oh, I feel better or I didn't look any different, didn't feel any different, apart from the fact that I knew that, please God, these cells are going to do their trick on me, which, as you know, it's not a God given that it's going to work. Uh, and it's all a slow, slow, timely process for them to start kicking in and and as you said it took probably 18 months until I felt normal again like my hair had regrown I was starting to get more energy I could start going to the shops again and uh, so I had my enforced isolation in 2015 like we're having now in 2020 so this is much nicer for me because I'm at home as opposed to being stuck in a little hospital room so like when people moan to me I'm like this is great you know I'm quite happy I'm I can deal with this I'm at home I've got my family around me so yes so it was a very slow slow process Uh, when I was first discharged from Southampton after four weeks I had to go up twice a week for blood tests and regular checks and then that sort of went to once a week and then it goes out to once a month and then so it's slowly getting longer so now I'm five and a half years post-transplant and I'm having a blood test every three months, one in Bournemouth at at three months and then the next three months, one in Southampton where they are like in charge of everything that happens to me basically. So I'm still monitored very strongly and touch wood, please God, I, you know, I've passed the worst. I never, I never take it for granted even now because you just don't know. Yeah. And what you said about 2020 and the, the isolation part having been slightly better than what one you used to I think that's something we've heard from patients before and we actually had a couple of people on the podcast back in back in April who were saying very similar things in some ways it's this is a lot a lot easier for them so that that's interesting I think a lot of people relate to that so those cells that were going in then you now are best friends with the person who donated those cells and do you want to tell a bit of the story of how you how you came to decide to make that relationship happen in our case there was no question we would correspond with my donor 
So we sent our first letters off in July 2015. I wrote one and my girls both sent one independently as well. And the process is it has to go to Southampton, then it goes to Anthony Nolan, and then it goes to your donor. So for the two years, we had the anonymity. Um, it was quite slow exchanging letters because of the process that it has to go through. But obviously, I knew nothing about whether it was a male or female even. So when my first letter came back, it was like, oh, it looks like a lady's handwriting. So we're going, yeah, she's a woman. And as I say, we just swapped. Well, you weren't allowed to put anything personal. Like I've got two daughters. I live in Bournemouth. It was all purely thank you so much um, and just general gratefulness on our behalf and as I said in that first year when we exchanged cards we put um, Annette put she would raise her glass to me at three o'clock on Christmas day so we did the same here and the second Christmas and so we corresponded for two years and then in May 2017, the two-year anniversary, I said, am I allowed to contact my donor now? Uh, it took a little bit of time for all the paperwork and everything, but it, yes, we were. So we both sent the forms that we had to fill out to consent to uh, meeting each other. And it was down to me. I was the one that had to make the contact, not Annette. So I sent her an email first because I thought, I don't want to speak to her on the phone. I want to save that until I actually see her. So I emailed and like a few days went by, I had no reply. So I'm thinking, oh, right, okay. So I'm chatting about it with my girls and they're like, well, maybe she doesn't check her emails. Not everybody does. Yeah, true. So then I sent a text message and ping about half an hour later, I got a response. And from that, I learned that she's called Annette. She lives in Northampton. She's about two years younger than I am. And she's got a family of three boys and a girl, and she's got two grandsons. And so we just exchanged text messages. And then two weeks later, Annette, weirdly enough, has family that lives down in Dorset, very close to me. And she was coming down to visit them. So we're like, okay, we'll meet up. So bear in mind, I, she doesn't have Facebook because I had a look, so I couldn't even see what she looked like. Um, so we arranged to meet in a pub in Poole and at six o'clock one Saturday evening. So we got there really early because we were all quite nervous. I took my daughters and my son-in-law. So we're sat in the back of the pub quietly waiting and like everybody that's coming in, we're like, is that her, is that her? Anyway, when she and her husband walked in, we're like, no, that's them. And anyway, she like was looking and we saw each other and we just hugged and like cuddled for a good few minutes. and. Uh, said our thank yous and anyway then we sat down we had some Prosecco of course and uh, um, we chatted for nigh on five hours that evening they had to throw us out of the pub at the end of the evening and um, and since then like we message every single day prior to lockdown we were seeing each other probably once a month she would either come to Bournemouth or I'd go to Northampton but yeah she's as I said she's about two years younger than I am, very, very similar. She's got a lovely family, which she loves dearly as well. So we've got very similar values in life. But as I, I always tell her, she's my genetic twin now. So she, we're bonded for life and she can't get rid of us. And uh, she also came to my daughter's wedding, which was in 2018. 
a guest of honour, of course, because I kept saying, without her, I probably wouldn't have been there because I gave my daughter away. And uh, so, yeah, she's a very, very special lady and we all love her lots. And I think you were, I, I like what you say about the, the particularly special bond in terms of you do share some physical things for the cells from her live within you and it's quite a strange concept for the rest of us to understand I guess how, how would you explain how that feels for you it's really weird and I'm also now my blood group has changed to her blood group so which often happens after transplants um I just I don't know how to explain it it's just I think when I see her I just know she saved my life and that in itself, if she wasn't now part of my life, I probably wouldn't be alive. So it's, it just go, it just comes from the heart. It, you can't really explain it, but like she is now one of our family and my daughter's little baby that she's going to have has got an extra grandma. And um, yeah, she is just part of our life. And yeah, it is a very funny feeling, but yeah, I do, I do love her. That's all I can say really. Yeah, that's really sweet. Mm -hmm. So just pivoting slightly, I'm wondering how 2020 has been for you, I guess. So your five years post-transplant was supposed to be, it was in May, but from your story, it sounds as if you were planning something quite exciting for that date. Um, How has the whole pandemic been for you? Well, 2020, as you said, in May was my fifth birthday. We were going to have a really big party because five years is a big number post-transplant. So obviously that's had to be put on ice. We, and as I said, we normally see Annette really regularly. She has come to Bournemouth a couple of times with her daughter to go to the beach and they popped in here, but obviously we can't hug and they can't stay over, which is what they would normally do. But generally the pandemic has... I think my daughters are more worried than I am because I feel well all five years I'm good but they are so paranoid for me because of obviously what I've been through they won't let me go to the shops they won't let me go to the chemist to pick up prescriptions and everything they're like no if you want anything we'll get it you're not going out and you know I and I feel I thought this, I am not going to die from COVID. I'm just not going to put myself out there. I'm not going to take the risk. I mean, I might be overcautious, but to have thought what I thought, I'm not dying from COVID. And I tell you that here and now. So, yeah. So my girls are probably more overcautious than I am, but equally, I'm, I'm just not opening myself up to any chance. And I've kept myself away from all my really good friends and everything. And same as everybody, we've got so much to celebrate when we're finally allowed out again. Yeah, I think that's a really understandable position to be. Yeah. You've been through a lot. You don't want to sort of see, maybe go go to waste isn't the best term of expression, but you, you know what I mean by that. So thank you for talking to us, Nikki. Your story is just, there's, there's so many different aspects of it that are really, really lovely to hear more about. I'm just curious as to whether we could top it off by asking you if you were talking to yourself as a newly diagnosed leukemia patient or if you had any tips for for a some someone who was newly diagnosed what what would you tell them um I think just be really positive at all times as hard as it can be never give in to those feelings of depths of gloom and doom stay strong 
think of what's going to come out of this. Like I, my, my motivating force was my daughters getting married and now having children. Um, but just focus all of that. And I, I used to make myself very upset thinking on the downside of all that. So be very, be very strong, positive, um, don't do too much research whilst you're going through treatment because that scares you. Just take it as it comes, day, live for day after day. Don't think ahead too far. You, you have to fight each day as it comes and the challenges that are thrown because you never know what they're going to be with this treatment that you have. So, yeah, the biggest thing, stay positive. That's a great message. Thank you. Thank you again for sharing the story again. And if anybody wants to read more about Nikki's story, you can do on our website uh, in the uh, inspirational stories section um, and also in the Telegraph from this time last year, December 2019. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline 08088 010 444. See you next month.